sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft, based on knowledge and appreciation of the founding principles of the American political economy and the Western tradition. Today's event is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about what they do, they are an <coughs> academic group that is embedded within our institution, and they run many of our Eastern European so I would highly encourage you to check them out on our YouTube page, the Institute of World Politics. You type that in, and you'll bring up our page. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, today we have the distinguished honor of uh, recognizing and inviting to speak a um, uh, person with a very um, interesting and immense background. And so I will only give you a few parts and pieces here, and I'll let her do justice to herself as she presents today. Um, her uh, lecture will, is entitled Safety and Tradition, Homeschooling's Unexpected Rise in Post-Soviet Russia. And that speaker today, we have the distinguished pleasure of inviting, is Laura Mitchell. She's a global outreach coordinator for Homeschool Legal Defense Association and a former lead uh, legislative assistant to that organization's federal relations team. And she is the author, uh, prolific writer, author of numerous articles and white papers white papers, um, including such as the uh, uh, managing the uh, HSLDA's uh, National Anti-Common Court Campaign and the Court Report Magazine. She is a uh, recent graduate of Patrick Henry College. She's a leadership scholar there, Intercollegiate Studies Institute Honor Scholar, and a Harvard Center Scholar. In various capacities, she's spoken to a wide variety of audiences, global audiences, including those in the United States, India, Canada, and including in the European Union. And her philanthropic efforts include court advocacy for children, the CASA program. Without further ado, Laura, I want to invite you to the floor. Thank you so much for coming out to IWP. And if we could please give her a warm welcome. Um, well, can you all hear me in the back all right? Is that okay? Okay, great. All right, well, as Kevin introduced me, I'm, I work with HSLDA. Um, and I told you all a little bit about what we do here, so I won't spend too much time on that. Um, but this project that I was working on throughout my senior semester um, was in conjunction with one of our lead international relations professors at Patrick Henry College small school in Northern Virginia, that government is kind of our thing, and Dr. Stephen Baskerville really helped with, with putting all this together and guiding this in the right way. So my actual presentation is in the form of a research paper, so forgive me as I'm switching between mediums here, I'll be PowerPoint some, and then at other times I'm actually going to read you some excerpts directly from 
um, my, my paper here, so forgive me if that's a little bit in and out, but uh, let's, let's go ahead and get started. I can, I can first kind of give us a brief overview so that you all know where we're going. Um, we'll just look at a little bit of introduction and background. Obviously, you all are here at the Institute for World Politics. You know a fair amount about Russia, but um, we'll do a little bit of introduction. Um, and then there's, there's really three key things underlying this whole discussion that, where we really need to take the history of Russian education into account, and we need to look at kind of the social factors. So all of these things we're kind of going to weave into this um, discussion. But the primary question here is, why on earth has homeschooling become so prevalent in Russia of all places? I mean, among other post-totalitarian states, we see that homeschooling is banned. So in Russia, why is it that all of a sudden it's become such a phenomenon? And why is it that you know here, uniquely, you see such a dramatic increase? Um, now, we have to remember, here in the United States, we have you know centuries of of freedom that we've built upon to get to the point of having such freedom in education where we can homeschool children and the government pretty much stays out of our business, right? Well, you have to remember that just in, a, in two decades, essentially, in Russia, homeschooling has gone from zero to 100,000, just trailing the United States and the UK. They are the largest homeschooling country in the world. And so when you compare how much time the U.S. has had to build that foundation of freedom to allow homeschooling, and then you look at Russia, which was under communist rule, totalitarian state, and all of a sudden they're, they're just behind us in, the, in, in one of the most um, freedom-oriented acts one can do, which is to disenroll their child from a public school system and, and educate them at home. It really raises some questions as to why on earth this is going on, right? Well, this debate is further sparked by the fact that religious freedom is not exactly Russia's favorite thing. Uh, to this day, they're still having issues, right? Here on the left, you see a photo of some Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, they were recently outlawed. It is quite literally illegal to practice if you are a Jehovah's Witness in Russia. Furthermore, the Church of Scientology for decades has been harassed by government officials, and there's been constant persecution. Um, Christians have faced you know, persecution as well. So, so this is not something really that Russia is, is doing too well on, right? The religious freedom issue. So, you know, when you look at the United States and you see that, quite frankly, homeschooling is a religious-based movement. 77% of all, all homeschoolers say that moral instruction is the primary reason for homeschooling. You know, why is it that here you see such a growth? And the reality is that homeschooling over there is really not a religious movement at all, but you know, we'll get into that some more later. And then, of course, we have the issue with um, homosexuals are constantly harassed. You have human rights violations on a regular basis in Russia, right? There have been reports that homosexual men are being imprisoned and tortured um, in certain parts of Chechnya, and there's some dispute as to the facts of that. Uh, case we don't really know what's going on over there, but the reality remains that kids are. Hi, come on in. You're fine. <laughs> uh, the reality remains that we still have these issues going on: human rights abuses, journalists are being killed. You know, you still have all of these issues that are cropping up, and so we wonder why is homeschooling such a thing when we can't even respect some of the most basic human rights? Uh, and it's a very good question. That's why we're all here today. So let's do a little bit, I'm not sure what that little thing is down at the bottom, but um, let's go over just a brief history.
history of Russian education. So it might help to start off the discussion by noting that homeschooling in and of itself is actually not a very new thing to Russia. Now, while under the Soviet Union, of course, you didn't have homeschooling. Homeschooling was absolutely outlawed. Every child must go to school. Every, every child must be indoctrinated a certain way. Before the revolution, before 1917, family education, as it was called, was very, very prevalent. Now, of course, Russia didn't always have the best education. In fact, the majority of Russian students were very poor. Uh, the majority of Russian students were not very well educated at all. Um, but nevertheless, family education was the means of education. Until you were about 15 or 16, you would be schooled at home. And the reason for this is very interesting. It's because of the preservation of Russianness. They kind of saw sending their children off to school as some sort of deviation from the, the best path to inculcate their children in distinctly Russian values. And so they wanted their children to have a hard work ethic, something that was, that was distinct to their country, a sense of nationalism and pride. Um, and so homeschooling was really seen as, you know, or as family education, as they would call it. That's, that was so accepted that it wasn't even thought of. Now, some of the names on the screen you might recognize. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the first two. Um, but the first two are very noted Russian poets. Of course, Dostoevsky, one of my favorite writers of all time, Tolstoy actually advocated for a sort of institutionalized form of homeschooling where children would be you know, encouraged to express themselves creatively, where experimentation would be the basis of education rather than just sitting at chairs and being lectured at all day long. There would be more of a creative spirit to it. So all of these uh, very prolific writers were came from family education. They were a product of the family education sort of culture, right? So this was this was very very common. And then of course, in oops, I'm not sure if that went by itself or what. Um, in 1917, all of this changed, right? Uh, the People's Commissariat of Education uh, arose and pretty much took over the education of children. Um, no longer were children allowed to stay at home. Everyone must go to school. Everyone, everyone must be taught um, a very certain set of, of uh, you know, standards. And um, there was a uniform social knowledge textbook that every child would have to read and understand that would communicate to them the ideology of the state. Um, this was a very common practice and is a very common practice in totalitarian states to this day. Um, you know, it's very standard. In fact, it, you know, this was so ingrained to such an extent that the Russian government, the Soviet government, actually would hire writers to come up with fairy tales for children that would push the Soviet agenda. So even those who were desperately holding on to the old family education ways, well, by the time those folks were grown up, they had grown up with fairy tales that were under, had this underlying Soviet message. So they didn't even really know they were being indoctrinated in some cases. It's just culture. That's just the way that it was. Um, and so that's, you know, that's important to note as well. But I think perhaps the most interesting factor that goes into Soviet education were these parent committees. And I want to read you an example that I found in my research that was very interesting um, about a case in Kiev, um, Soviet Kiev, when, when a notice um, in the Krasny factory was put up by another parent to the effect that Orlenko's son was misbehaving at school. Orlenko Sr. 
speedily found himself before the factory committee and was told that he ought to do something about this since it reflected on the factory as well as the child and the parent and the school. They pointed out that if Orlenko was unable to do anything because he lacked knowledge, his best course would be to consult the appropriate organ of the parents' committee. So quite literally, there was a shaming process that was set up so that if a child was misbehaving at school, well, all of your co-workers were going to know about it. And if you didn't want your job to be in danger or you didn't want to lose out on the perks of the system, then you would need to get your kid in. So it was very much, you know, a nanny state on steroids, right? You all know the dangers of communism. Of course, I'm talking to uh, folks over here from Victims of Communist uh, Foundation. Is that what it is? Yeah. So you folks know. I mean, this is this was uh, very, very dangerous, right? So whole families were replaced by the state. So in the 90s, right, when we see the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, this is really so remarkable. It's so remarkable what ends up happening. So the Soviet Union collapses, and you go from something that's extraordinarily structured to now a system where there's hardly anything in place at all, right? So the children are not being educated. They're not finding quality alternatives. And parents are desperate for something. They just simply don't have the resources. They're so used to you know, all of this time just letting the state take care of it. Um, and so homeschooling was actually welcomed by parents as an alternative to the very low quality schools that were being produced as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union. And what's so interesting, as you can see up on the screen, is that homeschooling was welcomed in Eastern Bloc states faster than in the West. And the reason for this was because in the Eastern Bloc states, they had a total repeal of these communist compulsory education laws. It was a total repeal. You had to do a, you know, a complete turnaround and institute something that was so different than what they'd ever seen before. So it was very easy for them, them to come up with new legislation that would allow homeschooling. And they simply spelled it out very clear, and everyone was quite happy about it, and everyone homeschooled, and it was great. Um, whereas in some of the more Western states, you saw the complete opposite. You saw that you know they were already starting to embrace some elements of educational freedom, and so it was a little bit, a little bit more fuzzy. They weren't completely withdrawing the current laws. Instead, what they were doing was that they were having to provide amendments to further clarify what was allowed and what wasn't. So, for instance, in Hungary, you had a complete repeal, and I'll read you some excerpts, right? Compulsory education may be completed by school attendance or as a private student on the basis of the choice of the parents. That's pretty clear, right? That was the replacement language for Hungary. In Slovenia, similarly, parents have the right to choose elementary education for their children either by means of public or private schools or by means of home education. There it is spelled out so crystal clear. There would be no doubt in the minds of the populace that they could, they could school at home if they so chose. If they chose to embrace this whole concept of family education that was so so um, common before the revolution, right? But in other other states, such as the Czech Republic, there was a little bit more more vagueness, right? So the amendment that was made to the Czech Republic's law was essentially to allow individual education. Well, what does that mean? No one really knew, and so it was much much more hazy. People didn't really know what to do with that kind of language in the law, and so there was there was quite a discussion over you know, how can we further clarify, and it took a while for them to, to kind of find out that homeschooling was in fact listed in their fundamental rights and freedoms. 
Similarly in Poland, they had to make an amendment there. Out of school, education was permitted, but what on earth did that mean? Did you have to school along with a certain number of families? You know, again, vagueness. And so what this resulted in, even though the West was a little bit slower in instituting home education, it resulted in the creation of many, many associations in the Czech Republic and in Poland and throughout the West where they were essentially like homeschool legal defense association is for the United States. And HSLDA today does tons of lobbying on the Hill to make sure that our rights stay secure. Whenever there's vague legislation, HSLDA is the one to step up and to clarify. It is among one of the most effective lobbying groups in the, in the country. And so what happened in these states where you know there was this vagueness was it actually encouraged, that was the thing that encouraged homeschooling even more than the Soviet Union's fall was because they had to really fight for their rights. And so it's, it's a right that's quite appreciated today. But I want to talk about two more factors that are very interesting that you see more so in Russia than in other states. Um, and that is the fear impetus. Um, a series of targeted terror attacks against children and against families um, that we can't really imagine here in the United States, although we will draw a few, a few parallels. Um, uh, let's go ahead and talk about some of them. First is the pirate school siege in 1998. This was a situation where pirates stormed a school, took about 17 hostages, took several um, teachers captive, even the, um, the principal of the school, and quite a few children were, were killed in that incident. And parents suddenly were, were, were shocked, right? They knew that home education was a right, but why use home education necessarily? What is the impetus here? Well, in 1998, all of this started happening. From that point on, there became more and more, um, you know, more and more attacks. In 2002, um, over 100 people were killed, right, in the theater shooting or in the theater hostage situation. Um, that was not targeted against children specifically, but the one I'm about to describe to you was, and you will be mortified when you when you hear about it. In 2004, I'm sure many of you are aware of, of what happened there in the North Caucasus, but. Um, there were over a thousand hostages at a, at a small school. Um, the children were, were rounded up and, and taken into the gymnasium. You can actually see a, a picture of the gymnasium there on the screen. Um, they, they waited there for days to be rescued and, and no one came. Um, the terrorists rigged the gymnasium with explosives. They were not allowed food or water. One little girl tried to run out of the building to a water fountain and she was shot by a sniper terrorist sniper on the spot, and all the other children saw, um, in the end, over 300 were quickly killed, right? And so this was just a monumental shift, absolutely monumental. Parents had had really no idea what was going on, um, and that fear was so ingrained uh, in their mindset, you know, how can we protect our, our children from this? And of course, we also have suicide bomber incidents. They were very prevalent. Uh, the Moscow Metro Railway bombing of uh, 20, uh, 2004, where 40 were killed and over 100 injured. The 2003 suicide bombing of a commuter train, taking the lives of 37 people and injuring almost 200. The 2008 suicide bombing of a passenger minibus, where 22 pounds of TNT resulted in 12 deaths and over 40 injuries, many of whom were children, actually the majority of which were. So we're seeing this, this prolific spread of terrorism. Parents are scared to send their children to school. Um, and that, that certainly was an impetus. 
but we see that this was the we see that this was a reason why. I mean, it's easy to speculate. Okay, maybe that's why there was a surge of a surge of uh, oops, go back one more a surge of homeschooling in that during that time. But actually, we see that many American organizations that were involved with Russian homeschoolers. Well, they were the ones to point out that they had massive increases in enrollment right after the Belsan Massacre. Many parents actually stating that this specifically was the reason why. Um, so I'll go ahead and list a few for you. Calvert Schools um, was one organization, and I mean, they had their enrollment tripled from Russia, with parents citing the Belsan Massacre. Similarly, Laurel Springs um, enrolls over 3,000 students, talked about a significant increase and families from Russia in 2004. Home Study International also said, you know, a large number of inquiry are, uh, from parents are coming from Russia, especially of high school students who told us they were just afraid to send their kids to a public high school. So, you know, it's hard to imagine a world where this is your one of your main reasons for homeschooling, and in Russia, it, it turns out that this is the case. Just to give you a little bit of, uh, you know, comparison, I mean, we look at the Columbine um, surge in, after Columbine happened, we saw a tremendous surge of homeschooling just in the local area. And there was over a 60% increase in homeschool enrollment um, during that time. And, you know, parents were saying things like, schools are a place where a monster can come to prey on children. There was another parent who would come home and she'd find her child standing on the toilet and ask her why, and they were practicing a school shooting drill, you know, earlier that day. For her to find her young child so concerned for her life that at home she would be replicating a, a school shooting drill, you know, these parents in the midst of tragedy, homeschooling is the only safe haven that they can find. And so in Russia, where this is just terrorism had become kind of an everyday part of life, um, this was this was just an alternative that they could turn to that you know promised a little bit more control and a little bit more safety. In 2014, 15-year-old um, Sergei um, Gordiev concealed his weapons under a fur coat and opened fire on his high school students. So shootings are also on the rise over in, in Russia, school shootings specifically. So it's it is a very sad time. Hopefully that. That trend does not continue, but it does explain a bit um, why homeschooling is, is growing. Um, Pat Lyons, an expert in homeschooling and a researcher with the U.S. Department of Education, states that whenever people think public education is missing something, they'll turn to another option. Sometimes that's a private school option, and sometimes that's a homeschooling option. If it's safety that, uh, that they fear is missing, that might extend to private school as well, leaving homeschooling the most viable alternative. So very interesting, something we don't really think about as much. The next step is kind of the backlash that resulted from Soviet feminism, Soviet um, kind of upheaval of the family unit. I mean, this, the Soviets really tried to restructure life as we know it, right? And so they, they talked quite a bit about changing the role of women, liberating them from the domestic roles so that they could, you know, pursue other things in the workforce. Well, as idealistic and wonderful as that sounds, it's not like here in America. Over there, it simply meant that women would work twice as hard as men because 18 million men 
were passing through the gulag at the time, right? So someone had to make up that work, and now women were required to make it up. And so this bred quite a bit of bitterness. Um, as you can see, this was kind of the propaganda that was put out there. Over, there, over on the uh, right, you'll see uh, the poster kind of of the duty of woman, right? To be, to be strong, uh, but not to take necessarily pride in her femininity, but more in her gender neutrality. And so experts have since said, as you'll see this quote from one psychologist on the bottom there, women welcomed a return to traditional gender roles and felt the urge to overcompensate for years of subjugated femininity, where you know they had been told that being a woman simply isn't all that. And so it's quite a culture shock over in Russia today, but nearly 78% of Russian men and women say that a woman's place is in the home and only in the home that they're not supposed to be in the workplace. And so we look at that and we think, well, that's a bit, bit old-fashioned. But actually, traditionalism was a way of rebelling against the state. And so when you think about it that way, how interesting that the conservatism of pre-revolutionary, pre-1917 social life, um, traditional gender roles, could be so revolutionary against the Soviet state. Um, that in and of itself, I think, poses some excellent political theory questions. Dr. Bayer, maybe we will discuss over lunch sometime. But I, I found that to be very interesting as well. Um, that luring concept of equality doesn't seem so wonderful when it just needs more work and a repression of what you think is natural and good. So today we see, um, you know, kind of harkening back to our the beginning of this lecture when we talked a bit about, well, what is with the homophobia? What is with imprisoning and torturing gay men? What is going on? And then you also hear Putin, right? His very traditionalist rhetoric up here. I've included a quote from his recent State of the Union address, essentially calling the West neutered and barren and talking about our, you know, our lack of moralities and our, our lack of unity as a state. Today, many nations are revising their moral values and ethical norms. Society is now required not only to recognize everyone's right to freedom of consciousness, political views, and privacy, but also to accept without question the equality of good and evil, strange as it seems, concepts that are, are opposite in meaning. I mean, how alluring does that sound to conservatives? Truly, that that sounds pretty alluring. Someone who wants to bring back, um, you know, all of these these wonderful moral principles and not go the way of the West, right? And so you have so much traditionalism, but why people over there just love Putin is not only because he's that strong man, sort of Russian figure that that Russians have always wanted in power, but more so because of this traditionalism and the fact that he is really seen as a rebel against that old Soviet system, and he charts a new path, a new way of life. Um, and so this is something that has just grown tremendously. Unfortunately with it, you know, human rights abuses can proliferate, and this can easily become extremist, and I think we've, we've seen that um, in, many parts of, in many parts of Russia. But um, I think that that's very important to look at. Indeed, further, when we're talking about the social and cultural traditionalism of Russia, we need to talk about the family under Soviet rule. And the family under Soviet rule was so destroyed, um, not only with 
no-fault divorces, but also abortion on demand and many other things that, that just took a, a country that was so traditional and overnight plunged it into just a completely different progressive sort of state that it, the country simply wasn't ready for that. If you look at this uh, account by an anonymous female in 1928, peasants with a respectable married life of 40 years and more behind them suddenly decided to leave their wives and remarry. Peasant boys looked upon marriage as an exciting game and changed wives with the change of seasons. It was not an unusual occurrence for a boy of 20 to have had three or four wives. I mean, can you believe that? Can you even imagine a world where, where that exists? And so it was a very different culture and a very different time. And if you have fallen out of love with this kind of society, and you are striving for some sort of order, homeschooling provides that sort of family structure that people are looking for. At least, you know, that's something that they can turn to as, as a validation that these family units still exist, that the Soviets have that the Soviets haven't taken all of that from us. And you see, uh, coming out of post-Soviet Russia, whenever you see family values conference or, you know, a memorandum on, you know, uh, the father's role or something like that. Oftentimes, if it's not coming out of the United States, it's coming out of Russia. The Yalta memorandum was one such, um, one such mem memo that came out. It was worked out by over 50 countries, but led by Family Policy, which is a leading organization in Russia that, that orchestrated this. And, of course, HSLBA has played a, a key role with many other um, organizations organizations in the area to put on the Global Home Education Conference, which brings together countries from all around the world. Um, this year, or next year in 2018, we're doing that in, in Russia, Moscow, and St. Petersburg at both locations. However, in the past, it, it hasn't been exclusive to Russia. Um, in 2016, it was in Rio, and we've had it at a variety of other locations around the globe. But um, in Russia, it has been particularly well received, and I think now we know why, because there was this whole setup <coughs> to receive it. So even though they didn't have that same foundation of freedom that Americans had, that that is where our homeschooling is built upon. You know, our homeschooling is built on kind of this religiously motivated, um, you know, reason to keep your children at home. Um, in Russia, it's really more about rebellion against the state, and that reflects in the demographics. A very small portion, even though the vast, uh, you know, majority of Russians would identify as Orthodox or something like that, but there's a very small portion of um, folks who actually identify as evangelical Christians or as Christians in general. And so the movement is not necessarily Christian. Um, and so there is a lot of growth that still needs to be done there in terms of reaching to other demographics, but. You know, if it's not religiously motivated, we have to ask ourselves, what is the motivating factors? And so far, these are the factors that I've seen in my research as being most predominant in Russia. So here's kind of a, a conclusion, kind of a summary of what I believe are the driving factors. The Russian homeschool phenomenon is a unique mix of cultural reactions, escapism, and a return to old traditions. And so, although we can identify with Russian homeschoolers in the sense that they are practicing homeschooling much like we are, they are looking for curriculum, much like American homeschoolers are looking for curriculum, they're putting on 
conferences and, and um, you know, they're, they're meeting in co-ops and they're meeting with other families and perhaps they have high school debate leagues like I was a part of in high school, you know, you never know. Um, there is this very different underlying factor. Um, and so when we're approaching the topic of Russia, I think it's important that we consider all of these things and, and be sensitive to the cultural differences that we have. Um, and so I know as, as I travel to Russia next year, these are all things to keep in mind as, as I'm dialoguing with folks and making connections and to realize that just because you might be the same in title, you know, advocates for homeschooling, you also each have such different factors at play. So for more information, you can write, jot this uh, website down, hslda.org slash hs slash international. We have a list of pretty much every country in the world and an analysis of whether or not um, homeschooling is legal and why. Um, we have resources there. As you can see, my, my boss, Mike Donnelly, one of our uh, attorneys in the office, was recently in Russia with um, uh, many prominent Russian homeschool leaders, and that was a phenomenal trip, so you can find, find out more about this trip there. But thank you all for your attention. That concludes my, my little presentation here. I am the worst because I ran out of business cards, so I don't have any to give you. But I'm going to just go ahead and leave that up there. As you know, if any of you have questions for me, I'll leave that there. So you're free to jot down my, my email there and reach out to me um, after this event if you'd like. But with that, I'll, I'll open it up. If any of you have questions, I'm happy to answer. Yes, sir. I'm just curious if you could talk a bit about the current level of support that homeschoolers receive from the Russian government and that they allow you to get out of business for that Well, it's interesting. Homeschooling right now, I mean, there, there are regulations. It's certainly not, you know, everyone just homeschool to your heart's content without any government oversight. Um, of course, there is some regulation. It's very akin to the United States Common Core, um, which is not popular <laughs> here in the United States amongst homeschoolers specifically who are fearful that they might have to, you know, abide by PARC or SBAC consortia um, and perhaps take these standardized tests. So homeschoolers are weary of that. Over in Russia, it's the same thing. They're, they're weary of government getting in the way, but there are regulations in place. Um, Furthermore, it's been interesting in, in planning our conference over in Russia. We also have to remember that you know we don't want to raise any red flags by going directly to the government, right? And advertising that that we just want to pull kids out of school because that's not really even what we're trying to do. But oftentimes governments kind of just assume that that's what you're there to do. Um, you know, here in the United States, we take homeschooling for granted because it's just so accepted. I mean. Some people still think we're a little weird, you know. There's still a stereotype out there, but in general, I mean, people know what homeschooling is. They've accepted it as a, an alternative form of education. Um, overseas, governments really don't necessarily know what to do with you, and so oftentimes they'll err on the side of more restriction, um, more harassment. And um, just the other day, I, I came back from the Cuban embassy, very close to here, and I was at a protest there. Um, a pastor and his wife are being thrown in prison for homeschooling their children. So, I mean, and that's a very totalitarian state, not a post-totalitarian state like what we're talking about, but it just goes to show when governments don't really know what to do with someone, they tend to err more on the side of, of freaking out 
rather than approaching it methodically and, and under the laws? It's a very good question. Does anyone have any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, how do they find the curricular? Is there uh, like some standardized, you know, body or agency, or are they on their own? Yeah, it's. That work? I mean, it's it's very complex. Obviously, the Russian government is so complex. Um, and to be honest, I don't know exactly what the process is for that. Um, but they have some sort of understanding of what homeschooling is. They, but what their primary concern is, is the unschoolers, those who do not want to involve their children in any sort of school, even at home. Right. You know, those who wish to completely, completely withdraw. And so I think the Russian government's involvement has been primarily to keep that from happening. Well, um, or possibly fraud, somebody would say that they're homeschooling, but in reality, really not. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the primary, I think the primary reason. But as far as the actual you know, structure of, of how they regulate and how they enforce, I'm not very sure. We haven't had contact with too many people who have, have had to deal with officials in that way, surprisingly. I mean, most, and, and thankfully, because most homeschoolers have been able to, to homeschool in peace, and we haven't seen many problems in Russia. Yes, ma'am. Um, so can you elaborate on how the rise of homeschooling in Russia is um, affecting um, Russia's attitudes toward the West, and, and even politics toward the West? Yes. I mean, isn't it interesting that we have um, such a rise of conservatism in both our countries um, right now, but for very, very different reasons, right? So in Russia, kind of more as a rebellious um, act. Here in the U.S., more as a return to something that we think has been stolen from us. So we have that, that mutual thing that we're both striving for, but for very different reasons. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that those reasons are so different. And that's dangerous, because then we might all of a sudden start to see Russia, Putin, etc., as being that, being on the same page as we are. When in fact, serious human rights abuses and serious other issues are still there. And so I think that, you know, the rise of homeschooling is great for cooperation with the U.S. and We've seen, you know, we're working together very well in terms of nonprofits being going back and forth and working with each other, curriculum providers, classical conversations, which is one of the largest um, homeschool operating groups, is over in Russia and expanding there. Um, so that's wonderful. But my concern lies with, you know, the fact this illusion that we're both striving for the same things because it looks like they're conservative. We have a very conservative administration in the White House right now. And so that would be, you know, my personal concern. But that's a good question. Yes? So how, do, how does, and you probably are, you know, the best knowledge, have the most knowledge on this, but um, so like Russia's public school and homeschooling policies versus like Western European countries like Germany and France, where I know they're public school systems are much more structured, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm pretty sure homeschooling is illegal in Germany. Yes. Um, so mm -hmm. how, how are those, how are they different, and how do they 
Yeah, that's a great question. That's, I mean, that's what makes this question so interesting is because there really truly is endless research that can be done on all of these other post-totalitarian states that to this day still outlaw homeschooling, right? In Germany, I mean, I've personally dealt with three different asylum cases from Germany over the past six months or so of families trying to homeschool for religious reasons who had to leave the country because of the persecution they were facing. So, I mean, there's a post-totalitarian country that is so opposite from Russia in this regard that the only explanation I can make is the fact that Russia has these unique factors kind of underlying, you know, the, the homeschool movement that maybe Germany can't relate to quite as much. You know, and so that that is a very good question that we see in, in greater Europe. I mean, you still have some issues pop up here and there, but... In Hungary, we have a growing homeschool population. Uh, we just had the World Congress of Families conference in Budapest, where you know homeschool supporters came from all over and joined together, and just in general, people supporting the family. Um, but again, that was also very influenced by the Russians, because the Russians sent a lot of folks there to support. Um, so you know, it's it's a very good question. It's not one that I can answer entirely. Because so much more research would have to be done about those surrounding areas. But um, I think these factors are why in Russia it has just grown exponentially. Yes, sir. Hi. Excellent presentation. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Yes, of course. I'm doing Kyle Lewis. I study international education policy here at American University. Okay. And um, I was wondering like, what, like, the, the kids in my class and in my school, we don't have a lot of Russian students. Like, we really don't. We have probably mm -hmm. like two or three, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, like, with all the stuff going on in the news right now, mm -hmm. like, Russia is in the news all the time, every hey. day, nonstop. You know, yes. and we hear all these things about Vladimir Putin and, you know, what he says and what he thinks. And, like, what should we think about that man and, like, the kind of guy he is or the kind of leader he is? or how he represents his country because mm -hmm. we really don't know. We really Everything don't know. We, know we like don't know what's going on, our right? Parents at this point. Yeah. Are like back home, yeah. like thousands of miles away watching TV and they're calling us asking us, who is this guy? What does he think? I don't know. Nobody <laughs> talks to us who's from there. Right. So I was wondering what what are your thoughts? Well that's a that's a great question. That's a very big question, right? What do I think of Putin? Oh my goodness. Um I missed the <laughs> I mean, I was born in the, in the same year, wow. in the same city, graduated from the same university. Oh my goodness! Let's talk. Let's talk after this. That is that is so interesting. I mean, please, do you have thoughts to share with us about what you thought about school? It's about homeschooling. It's not about homeschooling. It's about home tutoring, and I did it in the Soviet. Russia. Unfortunately, I was not prepared to, <laughs> to attend this lecture or presentation. This is our typical class. Oh, how is uh, you see, Russian classical writers? Yeah, I mentioned, mm -hmm. but you didn't get a historical context. That's mm -hmm. You didn't explain what does it mean Russian family. It didn't explain what does it mean Russian home. We have no place where to put more than three It's completely different infrastructure of housing. Mm -hmm. 
infrastructure of uh, cities, if you are saying about Moscow and Petersburg. But from my college, right now, it's very easy to maintain contacts or ties. I never heard that homeschooling uh, has any value. Home tutoring, tutoring mm -hmm. for preparation for very difficult exam, Russian literature and language. What I did all my life because people, uh, I mean, teenagers much better study with other person than with teacher. Uh, it was very common, and it was very common in the Russian Empire. But you just little slide uh, presented it was tutoring, and tutors mostly first were invited from Germany, then from France, and then number three, they was the class for English from Germany. Uh, well, I'm so glad you're here, first of all. Thank you so much for those thoughts, and this topic warrants a whole day of discussion. Oh, cool. There's so much to it, and you're so right that yes. there, there are there's yes, historical context. The Russian mm -hmm. family is completely different because in the World War One, you know, World War One, in the World War Two, so many young men were killed. So completely different infrastructure or attitude. What kind of family can be? And I always advise guys go to right now. Very easy. Internet website and read about Sweden marriage. It's very common, unfortunately, both before World War II and both um, after World War II because we didn't have that. Yes, and every woman at particular point wants to have a child. Thank you for sharing all those things. I do want to talk to you more later so that I can have a deeper understanding as well of some of these historical context issues. I do appreciate that so much, so thank you. But yes, I mean, to answer your question about Putin, I have, I don't know that I could give you a definite answer about what I personally think about Putin because I'm just like you. I hear, you know, so many different conflicting reports. I hear, you know, something saying Putin is awful. And then you hear things saying, Putin, he's not that bad. And, you know, you go back and forth. And with the, some of the scandals that we've been hearing out of the White House, too, I mean, these are all very hot topic issues. But I think, if anything, what I'm grateful for is the fact that, you know, this conservatism has allowed families to have more freedom in their homes, to be able to bring their children home if that's what they see fit, and to educate without fearing too much. Um, obviously, still, it's... It's uncommon compared to the rest of Russia and all of the millions of children that are in school there, but they don't have to fear as much as they would in Cuba or someplace that completely rejects conservative values. So I think that's how I would answer your question, but I don't think it really answers your question. I'm sure I'm, you're I'm still there, kind of wondering. Clip. There's a clip yeah. on YouTube. Of, um, I, I worked in the Office of Presidential Correspondence in 2011, okay. um, and President Obama was in a you know the when foreign leaders come to the United States, they sit down in that little room and they shake hands and, and the chairs and they take the picture and have the official yeah, photograph. Yeah. Uh, President Obama spoke loud enough that the cameras could catch him saying, "You know, um, I'll have more flexibility to work with you after the election," and that made worldwide news. Mm -hmm. You know, and he said it in a way, you know, not loud enough to be an official statement, but not, yeah. so we can all hear that. Okay, he's distancing himself. 
from political points. the policies of the United States outright to say, okay, well, I'm not the person primarily in charge of dealing with Mr. Putin. Giving us that signal, even though we don't know, you know, what you mean by that or why you didn't. Yes. That's wonder that's a great contribution. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, there's there's a lot at play there. And I think personally our, our best way to improve relations, I think is not even a governmental one. I think it's through nonprofits. I think it's through third party actors who are able to go and personally work and help with help families. Um, to communicate with children, to make a difference in those ways. I think that that is where we'll really see so much of a growth already from zero to 100,000 children. Just imagine where it can go in the future. So I think that that's really partnership with organizations from our different countries to help growth in Russia. I think that's really where you know we'll start to see an improvement and maybe a, a, an effect that goes past the homeschool issue into broader issues. And that, that would be Yes, sir. Uh, have you faced any opposition from uh, your visits over there from the Russian government? Some of the very suspicious of NGOs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we make sure that in whatever country that we're working with, um, HSLDA believes that it's critical that we are never imposing what we think is right onto a country um, simply because of these issues. Right? You may think that you're the same. But you're coming from a different place. And so you can never truly know how something will be received, if it will be received. Um, and so we think that if we believe homeschooling as, as a concept is useful regardless of culture, which we do believe it is naturally within us. We think that from the beginning of time, children have grown up in the context of family and learn best in the context of family, then we believe it's our role to work with local organizations and allow the local people who are interested in the movement, who really grasp onto the movement as something that they can relate to, to empower them to take it to their communities. So rarely do we as HSLDA actually go into a country, host a conference or something like that. We empower local grassroots organizations to you know, take it to their local communities. But the government of Russia is suspicious. Right, right. And we haven't received we haven't received um, much trouble with that at all. Okay. Um, it's been a very cooperative relationship. Um, you know, another big factor that, that we need to talk about when we're talking about Russia too is religion and the Orthodox Church and some homeschoolers that are, you know, very prominent in Russia are working with the Orthodox Church, um, are Orthodox Christians. And so there's a level of cooperation there that I think has really paved the way for homeschooling. And I think that that's probably another factor in you know the ease in which HSLDA has been able to support homeschooling in that region. Okay, I think that that's all I have. I don't want to keep you all too long. I know we've already almost come up on an hour here. So thank you all so much for coming.